In today's message, I want to talk to you about altars, A-L-T-A-R-S, altars. I want to talk to you about altars. Now, an altar up front, what is an altar? An altar is just a human-made structure that is used either or both as a monument for witness and or a location for worship. So note-taking purposes or mental markers in your head. I'm going to be talking about altars. What are altars? They are either a monument for witness or a location for worship. We're going to learn about altars in our study today, but for now that is just a basic definition for us, a human structure made as a monument for witness or a location for worship. Uh, a, a structure of witness, a setting of worship. Okay, so two Sundays ago, we began studying the book of Ezra, and we managed to unpack the first two chapters of the book of Ezra in this time. Two weeks, two chapters, that's what we've done. And today we're going to be picking up our study in the book of Ezra that I have titled Faithful to Fulfill. We're studying not just the book of Ezra, but we're going to be studying the six books of the Hebrew Bible that constitute what's known as the post-exilic literature. So we're going to be looking at an era of Israel's history when, when they were undergoing what we call the post-exile, after the exile. I'll say more about that in just a moment. So Ezra is, is the first of these books, and in this sermon series we'll be looking at uh, the post-exile. And we'll be looking not just at the history of the post-exile, but more importantly, of the God of the post-exile. So the, the subtitle of the sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill, is a study of God as revealed in the post-exilic scriptures. Now we left off in the third chapter and we're going to pick up the third chapter today and we are going to see in the third chapter the making of an altar, which is why I want to, by way of introduction, talk about uh, what altars are so that as we encounter an altar in Ezra 3, we have in our minds an understanding of what altars are. So before we dig into Ezra, if you've turned there already, I want to take you into another place of scripture as we talk up front just about what altars are and we get some basics down. I'm going to be taking you into the book of Exodus if you'd like to open your Bibles and be ready. Uh, but before we get into Exodus, in our culture, let's think a little bit about altars. It's a word that is not entirely foreign to us. We have certain idioms and phrases, colloquialisms that we use that have the word altar in them. I think in particular of the idiom leading to the altar. We talk about leading to the altar, which is a way of talking about marrying someone. Oh, you led them to the altar. And this idiom serves as uh, a play on words for the title of today's message in this third installment of Faithful to Fulfill. I'm titling today's message, Led to the Altar. Led to the Altar. And in this message, I want to talk to you about uh, the altars in Ezra 3. I want to talk to you about a historic altar that is built in Ezra 3 by God's people in this post-exilic hour. And we're going to see, we're going to see in Ezra 3 sacrifice on that historic altar. We are, we are going to see the people being led to the altar. Now, speaking of altars and idioms, we also talk in our culture, we have a, another idiom where we talk about uh, being sacrificed on the altar. Uh, we might talk about being sacrificed on the altar in reference to this or, or that. Uh, to be sacrificed on the altar is when you describe someone who abandons someone or something in exchange for another thing. I, I sacrificed my career in this or whatever for sake of having a family. I sacrificed uh, you know, this career in order to pursue that career. I sacrificed it on the altar. That is to say, I gave up this one thing in exchange for another thing. 
And in today's message, I hope that we will actually find our hearts stirred to make an exchange of one thing for another thing, specifically making an exchange of sin and letting it go here as we hear God's word today, and letting it go and exchanging sin for a full embrace of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that proclaims the ultimate and great exchange of our sin and our deserved death for his righteousness and his life. I pray that we will come in this hour to cling to the gospel and personally to Jesus himself who will never leave or forsake his people and leads us to the altar of the cross. Now specifically of of idioms and thinking about leaving and exchanging and this this sort of language of of altars. We have another idiom in our culture uh, that we, we talk about being left at the altar. Have you heard that one? Being left at the altar. We use that when a fiancé backs out of the big day. Hopefully uh, no one has wounds from that, being left at the altar. But uh, we, we see that a lot in the culture. Do you remember Benefer? You guys remember Benefer? That is uh, the code name for Ben Affleck and uh, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo. Ben proposed to Jennifer with a 1.2 million, 6.1 carat pink diamond. They set their wedding date for September the 14th, 2003 it was. But after that movie uh, that, that, <laughs> that bombed and Ben's uh, fidelity apparently bombed as well uh, with some Canadian dancer, the wedding was called off. It was, it was off. You, he was left at the altar. Speaking of J-Lo, just on Friday, the media was buzzing that her two-year engagement to the superstar uh, baseball player A-Rod, Alex Rod- Rodriguez, uh, ended. Left at the altar. It's all in the news this week. Left at the altar. And they joined the ranks of many other superstars. We... Think of Julia Roberts and Kiefer Sutherland, left at the altar three days before the wedding. Think of Emilio Estevez and Demi Moore, Tara Reid, Carson Daly, Gwyneth Paltrow, Brad Pitt, Sheryl Crow, Lance Armstrong. I could go on and on with this. And thinking about celebrity breakups, we are reminded of the subtle seduction in our culture to think that those who have it all actually have it all. Together, that is. The idea that money can solve our problems or that fame can fix us, it's just an empty idea. All that glitter is not gold. Even the stars separate. Even the famous are fallen. And it is because of this brokenness that altars are actually a phenomenon in human experience. They are not just structures that humans build for witness and worship, as I've defined for you, but but they are also structures that bear witness of our wandering and our worry. They are human edifices that are erected in hopes of reaching the heavens and of healing our guilt that we experience. Altars are a part of religious rituals that go back into the most ancient of times in human civilizations. All religions have them. All cultures have them. Why? Because human religions reflect human attempts at solving the emptiness of the human heart and our depraved imagination and finding a way to try to placate our guilt and trying to mend our brokenness. Further, to touch the divine and make sense of life in this world. Altars are a part of of this human existential phenomenon. Intuitively, we know we're not alone in the universe. There's more going on than the eye can see. We know this intuitively. There's more out there. And altars are a way of humans trying to access what is out there. That said, a biblical understanding of altars is much different than, uh, than, than this sort of human encounter, this this transcultural, transnational, uh, trans uh, chronological across all time phenomenon that humans experience with the making of altars. In scripture, 
We are led to the altar not by human seeking after something out there. We are led to the altar not in scripture by human invention. Rather, we are led to the altar in scripture by divine intervention. We see in the Bible God bridging the gap between himself and humanity. We see God graciously coming to an empty and a broken humanity to mend and to fill them. We see God exposing human gods and man-made religions as mere musings of mortals. Further, we see the immortal God revealing to humanity who he is and his plan to remedy these feelings of being alone and more profoundly and seriously, not mere feelings of being alone, but the actual reality of our rebellion against the creator and the just judgment that we deserve for using the life that he gave to us in ways that go against the giver of life. The story of the Bible is all about God redeeming a people for himself from among those who have gone against him. Rebels who are made family. The first and the second testaments of the Bible highlight God's work respectively in calling a people to himself in grace and providing for them the means to be right with him. Sin brings the consequence of death and, and, and in mercy, God responds to this consequence and responds to our rebellion in mercy and he provides sacrifices for his people to open their eyes to seeing the reality. The wages of sin is death. And sacrifice, something that is alive, is, is placed in death. And we see therein, our rebellion has brought death. And, and, and we see in this a need for a pure life to be given in the place of impure lives, sinners. Altars in the Bible are a part of this picture and this story of redemption. So by way of introduction, we're talking about altars to set up, as I said, Ezra 3, when we're going to see an example of God's people using an altar and the altars inside of the scripture are different from mere human altars, so we need to understand that. But up front, very simply to think about altars, they are memorials and sacrifices. That's the first point. If you printed out an outline this morning, you'll see memorials and sacrifices. What are altars? Biblically, they're a part of being a memorial and a sacrifice. In the Bible, we see altars being used by God's people for those things, as sacrifice and as memorial. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus. If you would find your way to the 20th chapter in a moment, we will be reading that. Now, Exodus, what the ancient Hebrews called Shemot, is the second book of the Bible in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. It records the deliverance of God's people Israel from slavery in Egypt. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, or what the Hebrews called Bereshit, Bereshit, you read the origins of the account of this people Israel who are liberated in the book of Shemot or Exodus. We read about their father in the book of Genesis, the father of the people who were rescued in Exodus. We read about their father Abram, an undeserving man chosen of God to become the father of Israel. God renames Abram, Abraham. In Genesis, we read Abraham's biography. Before the biographical data is introduced, the author of Genesis opens his text with the God of creation. So the author is keenly interested to show the ancient readers that the God of creation is the God of Abraham. The ancient cultures were polytheistic. The ancient cultures had many gods. And many of their gods were very tribal and territorial. Their gods ruled over specific areas. We've got the God of Inglewood and the God of Westchester and the God of Playa del Rey and the, and the God of Carson and so on and so forth. Their gods were territorial. As the antithesis of this, the God who we're introduced to in Bereshit, in Genesis, the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, is the God of creation. He is purported to rule over all the heavens and the earth. 
So in Genesis, God creates the earth and humanity. He gives life to creation and uniquely makes humanity in his own image. Sadly, humanity rebels against the giver of life and death comes into the creation. We were made in his image and the joke is that humans in their sin responded by making gods in their own images so as to repay the favor in their rebellion. Things spiral out of control very quickly. Humanity digs into its depravity. Genesis records God justly bringing judgment to the rebel army of humanity in a global flood. By God's grace, God spares an undeserving man named Noah and his family. This brings us to the very first altar in the Bible. First point on the outline, memorials and sacrifices. We're looking at the beginning of the Bible to see some examples of this building up to Exodus. The first example of an altar in the Bible is found with Noah. The first altar that we meet inside of the Bible comes at a time of intense darkness and deliverance. It occurs after God's judgment on the earth in the days of Noah. After the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord. There need not be an explanation of what an altar is because it was understood in that culture. But biblically, it is being used in a unique way as a memorial, as a place of sacrifice. It is worth noting that pagans at the time of, of Noah all the way up today would give offering or sacrifice on altars so as to appease the anger of their tribal and territorial gods. To try to connect with heaven, they would do this. In response to the feeling that I... I said earlier about feeling that we're not alone in the universe and feeling that we've made a mess of things within ourselves existentially having that feeling that things aren't right in response to this they, they would offer altars so the territorial gods in these places they, they would say well things aren't good in this area we'll offer an altar to the god of this area in hopes that things will be made right the god of westchester is clearly upset so we we must appease the god of westchester if the territorial gods and their altars have taught humanity anything it's that they are impotent to remedy the mess and unable to speak to our aloneness for they themselves do not exist and hence they cannot respond the tribal and the territorial gods are just figments of the imaginations of dead civilizations and now in the case of Noah, the territorial gods were exposed in Genesis 8. They were exposed as impotent and non-existent. For all of the territories of the earth were covered in the waters of judgment. Your territorial gods were drowned. Where are they now? They cannot save you. And then Noah erects an altar to the true and living God. It is worth noting that cultures have flood stories, uh, such as the one that I'm alluding to here in the book of Genesis. You have flood stories like the Gilgamesh epic from ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, they, they are very different, though, when compared to scripture. Critics of the scripture will often appeal to this and say, well, all these ancient cultures have flood stories, so the Bible's just copying them. And alas, that, that, re that doesn't actually stand when you scrutinize the claim. Even further, we see that in ancient cultures, there are these flood accounts because it actually stands the reason that, that this occurred. And that's why other cultures have these accounts of them. The Epic of Gilgamesh, though, when you compare it, it's this ancient, as I said, Mesopotamian uh, uh, myth story of flood. It dates back around uh, 2100 BC. In fact, in London at the British Museum, you can see the Nero Assyrian clay tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which contains on tablet 11 an artifact that has the story of a flood. 
And after the flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh in the London Museum on tablet number 11, if you're ever there, you can go and you can see it in the glass cage. On tablet 11, there is a story of them building an altar on the hills of the flood. But this story is much different than the biblical account that we're reading. The altars of the world, the, the, the figments of the imagination of men when they try to reach to the heavens and, 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 and try to figure out the mess within, right? They're much different when they are scrutinized and compared. If you were standing there in the British Museum and you were looking at the tablet and, and, your, uh, and your ancient uh, languages were good, you could translate this, and I'll quote from it in English. The gods smelled the sweet odor of the sacrificial animal and gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Yeah, that's not the Genesis account. The God of the Bible isn't the Lord of the flies. God isn't hovering over the sacrifice like flies hover over all sorts of uh, things, and I'll leave it there. But the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, this, this is not that God. The God who has revealed himself in scripture is a holy and loving one who eternally dwells in, in distinct and co-equal persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The one God in three persons who created the world, who judged the world by flood, who graciously spared human life as a part of the plan of redemption to come through the children of Noah to the children of Abram to the children of David and ultimately to Christ. After Noah and the Genesis account, that's where we lead up to Abram. The father of Israel, and this will set up Exodus for us. The father of Israel. The narrative of the flood and the creation tied together. The God of creation is the God of covenant that is given to Abram who becomes Abraham. God covenants or promises to Abraham, a fatherless man, that he would become the father of a promised people who would be given a promised land and through whom the darkness and the brokenness of humanity would be healed. The father of the people is seen making several altars in the book of Genesis. We see him making altars in the land of Canaan. He, we see him making an altar at Moreh in Genesis 12. We see between Bethel and Ai, we, 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 we see him making altars. Again, at Mamre in the vicinity of Hebron, we see him making an altar, Genesis 13. In faithfulness to his promise, God gives Abram a, a son, Isaac, and he, Isaac, would be presented on an altar, and he would have Jacob, and this historical figure would be renamed Israel, and the 12 tribes would come from him, and these men, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or Israel, are acknowledged as those of the promise. And we see God moving in them as they make these altars to be memorials and places of sacrifice to God. Unique altars, not like the pagan altars of the territorial gods, of the gods who fly over sacrifice like flies over feces. Abram makes altars. Isaac, Jacob make altars. Noah made altars. We read in Genesis 26 of the altar of Beersheba. We read in Genesis 33 of the altar of Sheshem. We read in Genesis 35 of the altar of Bethel. So these altars, physically, they're just elevated edifices, small raised structures that are made of earth and unwrought stone or brick or even wood stacked up. They're, they're outdoors, and they serve as, this first point on the outline, as a memorial. They're a memorial. You look at it and go, hey, something happened here. What happened here? And then it serves a pedagogical purpose. As people say, well, this altar is here because here's what happened here. Here's, here's where God revealed his grace and spared people. Here's where God revealed himself and did this and that to the patriarchs. They're memorials. They stand there to let us know something happened. In the case of Noah and the patriarchs, they're commemoratives of covenants. 
God made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abram. Something special has happened. Here's an altar so that you can see. It, it, it shows this, that something happened here. Something special happened here. Uh, in our culture, we, we erect things for saying something special happened. We put up statues of people. We put up plaques on things. You, you might uh, find some wet cement in front of your house or whatever and write your name in it as a memorial. Look, something happened here. To Noah, God covenanted his mercy following judgment. To Abraham and his sons, God covenanted his plan to use his people in the promised land for the, the healing of the earth. To bring them to the land, God raises up the prophet Moses. Now we're getting up to Exodus. And Moses serves as an abolitionist and a mighty shepherd for the people. He, like the patriarchs before him, Moses. Moses makes altars to God. And they serve as memorials. They serve as tables for sacrifice. Where things of value, when you sacrifice, you take something of value. An animal. A valuable animal. You, you take that animal. An animal that you would use to feed your family. An animal that you would use as commerce to sell to trade, to get things you need. You take something of value like an animal or even vegetation. You, you would sacrifice grain. You'd sacrifice vegetation as well. You take things in that ancient horticultural economy that are of value and you bring them to that little edifice that is lifted up as a memorial for what has done and that little edifice becomes a table of sacrifice and you take what is of value and you place it there. The, the altar then is a, is a place of that, of sacrifice. You've taken something of value and you've placed it there. An altar takes work. The sacrifice involves a cost. I have to work to get this animal. I have to work to get this grain. I have to work to get this. And then I bring it freely in worship and I let go of what costs. Giving what, what, what we otherwise would be using for ourselves giving what we otherwise would use for, uh, for financial profit, giving that is, is saying to God, you are worth more than this check, than this money, than this animal, than this plant, than this whatever. You are worth more than this. And that's what Moses does. He raises up an altar. He, he comes with sacrifice. The God who delivered Israel from the Amalekites in Exodus 17 is a God who is worthy of an altar and worthy of a sacrifice on it. Like Noah, who made the altar after deliverance, Moses makes an altar after the deliverance of his people as they come out of the underground railroad rescued from slavery. In addition to being a memorial of deliverance, sometimes the altar is a memorial of revelation. It marks a place not just to say, hey, God did something here, but it marks a place to say, God revealed something to us here. For example, when God revealed the Torah, the law, uh, to Moses. Moses responds with an altar. So in Exodus 24, we read about Moses building an altar at the foot of Mount Horeb. The law was given. God revealed himself to us. Let's bring an altar and let's take things of great value and place them on it. You know, our word worship comes, comes from a compound uh, of worth, worship, worth, to ascribe worth, to take something that is of worth, of value, costly, and to lay it down. God revealed Torah to us. He told us something about his will for us. Let's make an altar. So in addition to being a memorial of deliverance, it is also a memorial of revelation, marking a place where God showed himself. Exodus chapter 20, draw your eyes at verse 21. As God is revealing himself here, subsequently Moses responds in making an altar to give thanks for what God has revealed. God talks to the people 
about altars. And I want you to see this. Exodus 20, verse 21. The people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not, verse 23, make other gods besides me, gods of silver, gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall not make an altar of the earth for me. You, sh you, you shall, excuse me, make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and peace offerings, sheep and oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Remember, memorial. It's, it's a place of memorial. I, I will come to you, he says, and I will bless you, he says in verse 24. But verse 25, if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not uh, build it and cut stones or wield your tool on it and profane it. Verse 26, and you shall not go up to the steps of my altar so that, that, that your nakedness will be exposed on it. And you go, they're getting naked? What's going on here? Yeah, yeah, okay, again, God's people aren't the only ones who use altars. Ancient religions, all cultures, they have a phenomenon of altars. And the pagans, when they did altars, they would get butt naked and do goofy stuff. Archaeological work has surfaced countless altars in the sands of time. They are very common, and the pagan way of using an altar was not to be common for God's people. In fact, it was never to be done. The pagans get naked, they do all kinds of perverted things in their rituals, and we've got little kids here, so I'm just going to leave it there. But suffice it to say, it's, uh, it, they do goofy stuff, we'll just leave it there. The, 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 the altars that God speaks of that are proper are to be memorials of his revelation, not man's imagination. Things made with human hands by human hearts to serve uh, false gods or to be used in the worship of something else, that's all idolatry and it's off limits. It's not kosher. In Torah, God warns his people of the power and he warns his people to, to, of, of, of the power of, of idols and altars and he calls his people to the destruction of these things. He calls Israel not just to avoid them, but actually to remove them. After the exodus, God brings the people to the land of promise. Now we're going to lead up to Ezra. He brings his people to the land of promise. And we see there the destructive effects of idolatry and pagan altars. God calls his people, as I said, not just to avoid the altars, but to actually remove them. And in the account of the people coming to the land of promise, we see that they don't do that. They actually leave the altars. They actually syncretize with the pagan way of doing altars and, and idols. Now, now, God, again, reaches out, as he said to Moses, and he reveals himself to the people, and he says, don't, don't do that. Get away from those, those idols. Get away from them. Get, get rid of them. Don't just get rid of them. Actually replace them. This is very important in sanctification. Uh, if you, you find yourself tempted by sin or trapped in sin in the throes of sin, entangled by sin, it's not just enough to say stop sinning, oh, that it would be that easy, stop sinning, we must remove ourselves from the sin, we must flee immorality, run from it, but we must also replace it with something that is good. We must, we must tend ourselves to that which is good. At a very practical level, this, this works in life. Uh, if you're struggling with, say, an addiction, say drinking or something like this, it's not enough to say, hey, stop drinking, but, but you must replace it with something. Why not volunteer? Why not do something that's good that actually replaces that time and gives you something to be busy with, something good, something that you're doing? It, we, we don't just remove the bad, we replace it with good. This is a, a part of sanctification, a part of God's process of, of healing and restoring us. 
So in the case of altars, as God's revealing himself to Moses, he says to the people, don't just replace, don't just remove, don't just get rid of the altars of the pagans, but let me give you a special altar that's, that's for me. And I have in mind here the tabernacle that was designed by God, the Mishkan. And the Mishkan was revealed by God to the people, and he gives them the dimensions, and he tells them, build this for me. He gives them the Ikea directions, and you got all the stuff, and now you got to put it together. And they put it all together, and there's altars in the tabernacle and the Mishkan. And you come, and these, are, these altars are memorials for me. These are, these are true altars. These aren't humans trying to reach out. Is there more in the universe? Am I alone? What do I do with this icky feeling I have? No, this is God saying, this is for you. It's not man-made. It's divine. And this Mishkan, this tabernacle, was a portable worship center that would take the people from the Exodus out of slavery in Egypt to the land of promise. They would carry these altars. They would carry this place of worship. It was, it was portable. And God would bring them to the land. And they were to, to, to rid the land of, of pagan altars. And, and there have their tabernacle. And a, an altar that came from God. And to worship God there. And, and the great King David would come and said, let's make this tabernacle more permanent in the land. And, and the idea of the temple comes. And David's son Solomon builds the temple and the temple comes, and there's the altars that were given by God to the people for them to worship him in spirit and in truth. In the next installment of this series, Faithful to Fulfill, as we're in Ezra 3, and if you would now turn to Ezra 3, we are going to see them rebuilding the temple. But as we begin chapter 3, what we want to see first in today's study is just the reestablishment of altar. The reestablishment of altar. So altars, the first point on the outline, it's all about memorials and sacrifice. Altars, the second point on your outline, we move now to migration and saints. We are at this point in history where Israel, post-Solomon, has been judged by God for their sin. Israel loses the land of promise. It was not an accident. It was not a tragedy. Oh, that just happened to us. It was actually something that Israel brought upon themselves, and it was something that God had ordained and disciplined for their sin. Moses warned the people that this was going to happen. You don't follow the Torah, it will not go well for you in the land. Follow the Torah, it will go well for you in the land. Moses wasn't the only prophet either. God sent prophets to the people in the land. Not to mention his own revelation that was given to them in scripture that warned them of the consequences of exile. So the, the prophets come and they tell, they tell Israel, stop, get rid of the, those altars, stop, stop, stop. And they don't listen. And foreign powers, as a result, come and wipe out the kingdom. So we've been studying this in this series, Faithful to Fulfill. We've talked about Assyria coming and wiping out the northern sections of the kingdom and Babylon coming and wiping out the southern sections of the kingdom. And then a new world power rises up, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire puts, puts the beat down on Babylon, and now the Medo-Persian power is in town, and Israel's been booted out of the land for some 70 years. They've been outside of the land. We're looking at the first two chapters of the book of Ezra, just reflecting for context on the migration and the saints. For 70 years, they've been out of the land. The exile comes to an end now with Medo-Persia and the great king Cyrus. And Cyrus is like, yeah, whatever, y'all could go back to the land. Go back to your land. Have your way with this. Go, go back there and knock yourselves out. Go back to the land. So for 70 years they've been gone. And now, and now there's a battle cry that says, let's go back and let's rebuild what was lost. But it's 70 years removed. I think of my own family, uh, my wife uh, specifically. 
her maternal grandparents were immigrants from Mexico. They didn't speak English. They raised my mother-in-law, who spoke uh, Spanish and English, and my mother-in-law raised my wife, who speaks English. She would have to go to college and study uh, Spanish, uh, and, and mainly because she just wanted to talk to her grandparents who didn't speak English, and she wanted to be able to talk to them and, and, and wanted to be able to communicate with her grandparents who she, who she loved, but there was that language barrier there. So, so from, from a generation that immigrated to a land, only Spanish, to Spanish and English, to only English is the illustration here. Think about for Israel that has, that has left the land, the language, the culture, the places, the people, and goes to Babylon, to Iraq, and now they're born in this. And you're like, and now you're hearing this cry, hey, let's go back. You're like, go back. Like, I'm Iraqi. You know what I mean? Like, speak Hebrew, go where? I'm not trying to do all that. Like, Dad, I'm going to the Iraqi high prom. Why, why, do, why are we trying to go back? That's not where I'm from. And so we've seen in the, in the beginning chapters here as we're looking at the migration and the saints, there's this dynamic of people who are like, I'm not trying to go back. It's cool. It's cool here in Persia. The cucumbers are nice. They, they, I like this place. I'm not trying to go. And you see God raising up a remnant who will go back to the land. Uh, recently, I was talking with our very own Pastor Tony. He was musing with me about this, that, you know, his, his family, his parents, you know, they immigrated from China. And it was approximately like 60 years, so they're, they're getting up to that 70-year mark of where it was. And, it, you know, it's like, can you imagine, you know, like the church going, go back to China, you know, and, and let's do this. You know, like, I, I didn't grow up there. That's not my place. That's not my people. That really puts it in perspective what's taking place in Ezra. You got a generation being called to go to a land that they don't know. Arguably a God that they don't really know because they've gotten into Persia culture. They've gotten into Babylonian culture. They've been exposed to pagan altars and territorial gods and idols. And now that all has to be cleansed. And so we see in Ezra chapter 3 the establishment of an altar. And it's a call to repent, a call to let go, a call to get right with God. Now, as we put things in perspective with illustrations of, say, Pastor Tony and, and my wife and thinking of what that would feel like at the human level, let's put it in perspective of the divine level. It is God who is in control of this. So now we move from the migration and saints to the third point on the outline, the month of seventh. I'll explain what I mean in just a moment, but look at the text, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities and the people gathered together, as one man to Jerusalem, then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers and the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose and built an altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, of the man of God. So we did all that background on altars and what have you, because here we open up the third chapter where we left off, and we're reading about altars, and we're going, what's going on there? And he's talking about Moses, and so we've surveyed Moses and looked at the significance of Exodus and read Exodus 20 and God's warning about having pure altars and not pagan altars. Now, before I talk about the month and the significance of seventh, which is the third point on the outline, we've looked at memorials and sacrifices, migration and saints, and now the month of seventh, before I talk about the month of the seventh, let me quickly note a little detail here about Zerubbabel in verse uh, 1 and 2. In verse 2, Zerubbabel gets the credit for building this altar that we're studying. Uh, later in Ezra chapter 5, verse 16, uh, Sheshbazar actually is given credit for it. And this, just a little tidbit here, just for you Bible study uh, you know, folks, uh, this, this leads to some people thinking that 
Shesh Bazar and Zerubbabel could be the same dude. Uh, perhaps Shesh Bazar, it's speculated, is just the court name of Zerubbabel because in 516, Shesh Bazar gets credit, but here in verse 2, Zerubbabel does. Maybe they're the same guy and these are just different names. It's not entirely clear and certainly not the only way to interpret the text. It could be that they are two men who are both just involved in the rebuild. Shesh Bazar starts the project, uh, Zerubbabel finishes the, pro the project, and so you could say one did it or the other did it or whatever, and that explains Ezra's account of things just fine in these opening verses. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that these figures, as I've highlighted in previous messages, these figures are placed there by Cyrus the pagan king, the Persian king, the Medo-Persian empire that's come and wiped out Babylon and said, y'all can go back, whatever, knock yourselves out, go back. He's not a closet believer. He's a pagan. And he is using religion, he's co-opting religion as a part of his hegemony. Cyrus amassed power by the sword, and he maintained it by propaganda and politics that involved the incorporation of religion and spirituality. In this case, he is using Israel's faith to secure Israel's favor. He is letting them return to the land and build their temple, but he has strings attached and his appointees are there to make sure that his nationalism is woven into things so the people are loyalist to his throne. Knowing the role of religion, political powers will co-opt religion and spirituality for power. This is the phenomenon of the ancient world that continues all the way into the modern world. Our presidents will claim Christ. Our parties will claim Christ. And you start picking on them of how they don't look like Christ. And what do they do? A bunch of but what about isms of others when they get exposed. Our politicians and our parties infuse, infuse their propaganda with religion and their actions almost always betray their rhetoric. But their rhetoric nonetheless manages to whip people into a frenzy to fight for their cause. In the case of Cyrus, his cause is control. But little does he know who is really in control. God ordained it all, and it's all coming to pass. God is using Cyrus to accomplish his will. It's a fitting thing for us to be studying as we have our own political turmoil in this nation and people going back and forth, ripping each other apart and dividing over what so-and-so who's in power said and what so-and-so on this YouTube channel said. We need to be reminded that if, if God can use Cyrus right, to accomplish his will, a pagan king, he can use the president, he can use Fauci, he can use uh, our governor, he can use our mayor, he can use them all. They're all but puppets in his providence. In previous sermons, I've been emphasizing how the text says that it was God who was moving the hearts for his work, and that brings me to the significance of seventh, the month of seventh, this third point on the outline. In the providence of God, God's work is happening in the seventh month, the text says. The seventh month is the sacred season for Jewish people of Teshri. Teshri goes from September to October. During Teshri, the holiest month of the Jewish calendar occurs. That is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, takes place in Teshri during this time, the month of the seventh. As well, there are other significant holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Hashanah Rabbah, and Sukkot, which we'll read about in just a moment, Sukkot. In Jewish tradition, Teshri is a season of new beginnings. According to uh, one voice in the Talmud, Adam and Eve were actually created on the first of Teshri. So it's a day of beginning, a day of creation, a day of new things, as well, a day of repentance. Teshri begins with 10 days of repentance. Asheret Yemei Teshuvah, 10 days of repentance. The first day of repentance is the day of Rosh Hashanah. The last day of repentance is the day of Yom Kippur. New Year and Atonement. 
And during these 10 days, the people are called to the act of teshuvah. Teshuvah means to turn. Teshuvah means to, to repent. In fact, our word repent means literally, literally that, to turn from something and turn toward another. In our, in our New Testament, in the Greek, it's metanoeo. It's a, it's a turning. It's a changing of the mind. Teshuvah. You're called the Teshuvah in the Aseret Yemesh Teshuvah. We have 10 days of Teshuvah, 10 days of turning, 10 days of removing altars and idols from our lives and our hearts and replacing them, Teshuvah, with things that are from God. This is to take place at the individual level and at the communal level. I'm to examine my heart and my home as well, my community and my culture. They reflect on their corporate sin in Teshuvah. Look at the sins of our people. They reflect on their personal transgressions before God, the sins in my heart that, I, that I'm aware of. And in reflection, we then turn to God in teshuvah, metanoeo, repentance, and we say, Oh Lord, forgive us. Oh Lord, change our hearts. Oh Lord, turn us. Oh Lord, be merciful to us. And at the end of the teshuvah, there's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Atonement is a word that, that, that is used, it's, it's really an English word to translate the ancient words. It's one that we uh, translators actually sort of made up for, for lack of how do we translate this. But atonement means to be at one with, things that aren't reconciled, things that are separated, to make them one again. Atonement, Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, and the atonement comes through a life that is lost. You read about Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16 and 23. On the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest goes before the Lord in a very serious and somber and special ceremony. The priest goes through a prescribed ritual that culminates in the giving of a life, the sacrifice of a bull, a big old bull. Can you imagine killing a big old bull? How gory and, and somber and sobering that would be. And the priest kills the bull for his sin. That big old bull gives its life for the priest's sin and the sins of the priest's family so that the priest can then offer another sacrifice and do so with his hands clean because there's been a sacrifice that's been made for him. The blood of the bull is sprinkled on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. Then there are two goats that are taken to be presented for the sins of the people. The priest is covered by the bull. Okay, good. He's kosher now. So he comes and he brings these two goats and they're presented. One of the goats is sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other goat is then taken and the priest lays his hands on the goat as a symbol of transfer. And, and the priest confesses the rebellion and the sin of the people as he holds his hands on that goat. And then that goat that he has had his hands on, that goat that has had guilt transferred to uh, ritually, symbolically, that goat then is set free. One goat dies, another one goes free. This is where we get our, our idiom scapegoat from. A scapegoat, right, is a person who is blamed for the wrongdoings or the mistakes of another. I, I, I went down, I went to jail for you, I was the scapegoat, and you got to go free. Now, in the case of Yom Kippur, the one goat takes the guilt, the other goat is set free, and again, they are doing this, the goats, the people, the priest, before God, according to Torah, as symbols of the sins of the people. On the one hand, there is judgment that we deserve. We, de we deserve to die like the one goat. We've rebelled against the giver of life. Death is a fitting consequence. That's what we deserve. On the other hand, we're seeing this picture of, of, of this goat that runs free and takes our sins as he runs into the wilderness, escorted by the servant of the priest. Hundreds of years later from this time, the eternal Son of God would become a man to become our scapegoat. 
on, on his head, our guilt and our shame would be placed by the priest of heaven, God. And his blood would be poured out as a sacrifice for us. And we would be set free. Further, we would be justified. The righteousness of God satisfied and given to God's particular people by the sacrifice of the Son. And the wondrous thing of what the Son has done deepens as we behold the Son is for his people. The Son is not just the sacrifice. He is in the flesh of his people. Not just an enfleshed sacrifice for his people, but he's also the priest. And as the priest, he requires no bull to sacrifice beforehand so that the goat can be offered because he is holy and without sin. He is righteous. And along with taking our sin, he gives us his own righteousness. That is the great exchange. And in the days of Ezra, the people were awaiting this coming of the Messiah, the seed of David, who would do just that. And in the days of us today, we look back knowing God's providence through it all. And as we see this seventh month, happening at the time of Tishri. We're reminded that God was orchestrating all of this through Cyrus to take place in Tishri to call the people to repentance and preparation. He was preparing their hearts. Verse 2, we read that the brothers arose. They built the altar of God. They began offering these burnt offerings. They get to the land, and their first project when they get to the land is penance. I don't know about you, but like if I'm going somewhere, I'm traveling somewhere, my first act when I get somewhere is where am I going to sleep and what am I going to eat? <laughs> you know, what are we getting for dinner? Where's the hotel? Their first act is penance. They come for teshuvah. They come to repent. They offer offerings. They give thanks to God. They show God's worth in their lives. You are so worthy. You have brought us here. We don't deserve to be here. Our fathers rebelled against you. We were born in Babylon. We're functionally Iraqis. We, we shouldn't be here, and yet you brought us here. Look at what you have done. You are so faithful, God. We come to offer this altar. Bring our hearts in repentance. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, and Acts chapter 5, verse 31, repentance is a gift that comes from God. What we are reading here in Ezra 3 is a gift that has come from God. Look back at the text in verse 3. We read, so they set up the altar on its foundation... We read that they, they, they set up the altar on its foundation. We read that they were terrified because of the people of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. The wording of verse 3 brings me to the fourth point on the outline, morning and sunset. We've seen memorials and sacrifices, migration and saints, the month of seventh, and now morning and sunset. Ezra tells the people, calls the people, he tells them of this faithful God. They're moved in repentance from sunup to sundown. This sunup to sundown is not prescribed in the Torah. It is not a command of the law. It is a compelling of the Lord. It is the beginnings of a revival. The Lord is working within and it's overflowing in worship. And to display that it is a God thing, Ezra adds this detail to let the reader know. Ezra talks in verse 3 about the fear and the terror that they were experiencing. On a human level, when we're afraid, we play it cool. When you're, when you're afraid of something, you play it cool. I'm going to play it cool because I'm scared right now. Not these people. They don't play it cool. They turn up the heat. What's the terror about? Well, scholars suspect that the location of the altar was actually covered in altars. Some historians on the basis of Jeremiah 41.5 maintain uh, that in order to build this altar, the returned exiles had to tear down the pagan altars that were placed on top of it. And so they're doing what I was talking about, removing and replacing. They have to do that work. In order to build up, they have to tear down. Sometimes you have to do that in life. 
You don't want to build on a, on a to use Jesus' uh, parable, you don't want to build on the sand. You're going to get washed away. You have to have a sure foundation. You have to remove, you have to tear down in order to build up. It is likely that the sacrifices that had been offered during the exile, at least in the early days, uh, were, were still there. You still have pagan pagan sacrifices on, on this sacred place, and so they have to get there. they got to remove those. They're out in the open. They're out there. It's not like the land was empty. There's people living there. The land of promise when it was given to Israel, and they come, uh, Joshua, right? There's Canaanites there. Yeah, that's your land, but hey, there's people there. There's stuff popping there. What you going to do when you get there? You want to repent? You want to set up an altar? Altars are outside. People are going to see you. You start messing with their little pagan altars and stuff, they're going to get upset. And you know what fear does? Fear stops things. You not only play it cool, but you just don't do it because you're scared. Fear shuts things down. That, that's why COVID is the way it is. We're, we're scared of stuff. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to, you know, pe people are scared of this thing. Are we going to shut things down? We're afraid. I think of uh, even recently in 2021, uh, what took place at the Capitol. We now have 5,000 troops deployed at the Capitol. At the Capitol, uh, January the 6th, as a result of the Capitol riot. 5,000 troops sent. We shut it down. We put up fences. We put up barbed wire. We're, we're afraid. We're scared. We just shut it down. You know, we only deployed 100 after 9-11. Put that in perspective. That's 50 times the number of troops that have been deployed to D.C. 9-11, we sent 100. After what happened on January 6th, we sent 5,000. They're talking about in the news, I saw this week, 2,000 guards could stay until the end of May with a price tag of over $500 million. I would argue the National Guard has already completed its mission. I don't know why they're still there. Meanwhile, we have riots in Portland that are ramping up, courthouses that are getting torched to the ground. Send some of the troops over there. But like I said, the point is we shut things down. Something happens, oh, snap, send it 5,000 people. Let's spend $500 million. Let's just shut everything down because we're scared. Israel would have had every reason to shut it down. Let's, let's postpone the altar. Let's, yeah, it's to, it, yeah, yeah, it's the days of, it's Tishrei. Yeah, we're supposed to do the repent thing. But, you know, let's not do that. I got an idea. I got an idea if they had a committee. Why don't we build some walls first? Let's get a building cracking. We'll build some walls, you know, some fence, some barbed wire. We'll get things safe. We'll get things protected. And, and, and then, then we could set up the altar, you know, and we'll, we'll worship inside. We'll have some protection or whatever. No, they're not doing that. There is fear, but there is faith. God is compelling in them. No, I am worthy. The, 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 the worth of it isn't just the sacrifice on the altar. Their lives are living sacrifices. They are literally risking their lives, having traveled from Iraq to Israel and now in a hostile land, worshiping God in front of everyone. Verse 4, we're reading the text. They celebrated. Look at verse 4. The Feast of Booths, as it is written, and they offered the fixed number of the burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as the day required. The Feast of Booths, or what the Hebrews called Sukkot. I mentioned that earlier. That's part of Teshri. Sukkot is a holy day that is celebrated outside. In the providence of God, he brings them there in the midst of their sacred calendar where they're doing all sorts of ritual outside. Gee, thanks. We've got to be outside. The booths were tents. Sukkot, they're just tents. So you folks who like to go camping, this is like a holy camping trip. 
It, 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 it took place five days after Yom Kippur on the 15th month of the, of the Hebrew Teshri that I've been talking to you about. So it's Teshri time. And you get out your tents and your tabernacles. Let's get our Teshri on. Let's go camping. The booths or the Sukkot, they're supposed to remind the people of their days in Egypt, which we covered when they were rescued and liberated from Egypt. And as they were rescued out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness, they lived in tents for a period of 40 years, these temporary dwellings, Sukkot. Like what, uh, what the Jews lived in when they were homeless slaves, escaped from Egypt, so too now in Teshri, you do this, and these serve as altars, as memorials to remember how, how God rescued us. And so we look at these tents and go, why are you guys in tents? Because God rescued us. And these tents remind us of how God was faithful and how God did this. It is a holy week of thanks for God's provision for people. It is also a, a, a week of harvest, because in the ancient world, when you harvest your crops, you would set up a tent in the field so that you could watch your crops and make sure no one steals it. So the Sukkot, the, the tents remind you of harvest. They remind you of liberation. They remind you of, of, of God and his covenant with you. They serve a functional purpose as well because Sukkot was a pilgrimage festival. Back in the days before they lost the land, the Jewish people, when you celebrate Sukkot, no matter where you are in the world, you're supposed to get your tent and you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It is a part of what's known as the Shalash, Shalash Regalim, which is a holy pilgrimage. The Jewish people had three of them. This is one of them. You come back into town. You celebrate. And so those tents serve a functional purpose. We're going back to the land. We need a place to sleep. Ah, we got our, our sukkah. We, we have sukkot. We, can, we have a place to sleep. It was functional. One of the blessings of the 2020 lockdowns, I think, has really been this. Just kind of being outside, being reminded the church is not the building. For Israel and Sukkot, they're being reminded as they're outside that, 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 that the people, that Israel is the people. It's not the temple. It's not the structures. It's not the building. It's the God who has called us. It's the God who has brought us together. As you read more about Sukkot uh, in, the, in the text of Scripture, you could uh, look at Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, as well as right here in Ezra 3. The celebration begins with Shabbat, a day of rest. Ezra tells us that the people are tabernacling and, and, and they're worshiping. And Ezra tells us that they're afraid because there's opposition. There's enemies who could take their lives for what they're doing in setting up this altar. And so, so knowing then that Sukkot involves Shabbat, that's the last thing you do when somebody's trying to kill you. I got an idea. They're trying to kill us. How about we take naps in our tent no, how about we get some shanks and we start practicing our karate in case they come for us. We're not going to take a nap. Why are you going to take a nap? Trust God. Clearly, God is moving in their hearts and doing this. And afterward, verse 5, we read, there was a continual burnt offering for the new moons and the fixed festivals of the Lord, and they were consecrated. And from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord, Ezra describes their, their worship and what they're doing as free will, right? This is worship. They're moved by God. And in response to God's grace, they're just offering. They're just giving. Finances that will furnish the sanctuary of praise, which leads to the next point. We move from the month of seventh now to morning and sunset. Draw your eyes at the text. The final verses here that we will read for today, verse 6 and 7. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians 
to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission that uh, had come from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Earlier in Ezra 1.5, we read about how the Lord was stirring the hearts. In Ezra 1.6, we read about free will offerings of the people. There was mention there in Ezra 1.6 of silver and gold and goods and cattle. In Ezra 2.68, uh, uh, we read about the people offering for the house of God, it says. Offering willingly, it says. Again, it's, this isn't, this isn't a, under compulsion. This is a response of the work of God in their hearts. We read in Ezra 2.69 about their gifts of gold drachmas and silver minas. And here in chapter 3, we see the Lord continuing that work in their hearts so that they're giving. God's moving in their hearts. I shared with you all Delray Church family recently at our family business meeting of, you know, the impacts economically on the church, the ministry of the church, numbers being down, finances being down. We entered into 2021 uh, shaving $150,000 off of our budget, which is like a third of the budget or so. We have staff members taking cuts. We're feeling, we're, we're tightening. We're going, oh, what's going on? And then I shared with you at the meeting how the Lord moved on one person. There was no email made. There was no appeal made. There was no nothing. I don't even know who the person is. Moved on one person who wrote a check for 150000 and gave it to the church and provided. Where God guides, God provides. I'm not making this stuff up. He moves on people's hearts and he goes, they're going to give and it's going to work. You stay faithful in me. You stay faithful in worshiping me. Forget about what's going on in the world. Forget about, but what about isms and them and this and that? You focus on me and I will provide. God is at work in our midst. He was at work in their midst. How are we going to go from Iraq to Israel? How are we going to rebuild a temple that's in ashes? How are we going to rebuild our lives? They're, like we're thinking about COVID and just having a year being gone from a place. Like how are we going to reopen? What's that going to look like? They've been gone 70 years. Their stores, their homes, everything burnt to the ground. How is this going to happen? I'll tell you how it's going to happen. God's going to move in the hearts of, of his people. And they are going to want to worship. And they are going to want to give because he is worthy. So in Ezra, they're giving. In Ezra, God's providing. The people aren't cutting corners either. We read in verse 7 of the cedar wood from Lebanon. The men mentioned in Sidonia and Tyre, they would have journeyed to go get that wood and they would have floated the trees down Joppa and they would have come from the port of Joppa down to Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles 22 and 2 Chronicles 2.16, we read about how they did this before when they built the Temple of Solomon. They use this expensive timber and here they are again and here God is providing through his people and, and, and they're not cutting corners. They're getting the good stuff. Rebuilding the temple is a major project. But again, before they rebuild, before they get the cedar from Lebanon, what do they do first? They worship. What do they do first? They rest. They have Shabbat. We work so much. We work so much. We work so much. We rest and God works, and God gets the glory. You know it was God who did it. They're resting. You know it was God who did it. He gets all the glory. Instead of building walls, they're making an altar. Instead of protecting themselves, they're worshiping. Instead of fighting against the government, instead of fighting against the people, they say, what we're going to focus on is worship. And we see God moving in the hearts of people and drawing them in repentance of faith. That has been the principle that has led us as a church through 2020 to 2021. I'm not, not going to fight. I'm not going to fight that out there. We're going to emphasize the worship of God. 
We're going to have communion. We're going to hear about Jesus. You're going to hear the triune God uplifted. You don't come on a Sunday to hear my take on the news or my take on a president or my take on uh, masks or whatever else. You come to hear about Jesus, don't you? You come to hear about the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who's sovereign over creation, who rescues his people. And that's what we'll be known for as a church. You're that church that rests while the world rages. You're that church that worships while everyone works. The seventh month came, Ezra 3.1, the sons of Israel, they gathered together, look at verse 1, as one man, it says. They were drawn together in the Lord, and so they were united. That is the work of God. God's revival always begins with the unity of the people around his revelation. A wall of loose bricks cannot stand. A, law, a wall of loose bricks will get knocked over ever so easily. But you put cement in there and you bring them together. And that cement is the work of the Spirit ultimately. It's the Spirit bringing the people together. The post-exilic community learned this. In Ezra 3, they're experiencing this unity. They're not fighting with one another over things. They have come in worship. We need to learn to run to the Lord to work within the hearts of the people and call the people to this. This was our public reading of scripture today in Philippians 2 where the Apostle Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's what we see when God moved in the church in the book of Acts and the revival that came. In Acts 2, when the Spirit came and glued them together as that fortified wall and moved them on mission, we see that they had one mind. They shared all things in common, we read in Acts 2. They were sacrificing and giving it all in a hostile world, just like what we see here in Ezra 3. For Paul, the church was the people. It wasn't the building. For Paul, the priority of unity wasn't abstract. It was personal. It's the people. I often hear people say things like, I'm committed to so, such and such church. I'm committed. You know, this is my church. Fill in the name. This is my church. Fill in the name. I'm committed to fill in the name. But it's all just kind of in abstract. It's not personal. I'll tell you what. I'm not committed to Delray Church. I'm committed to you, the members, the congregation, the people. Our lives, our relationships, our tears, our fears, our burdens, it's the people. It's the people. And as the people are drawn together, therein God works through revival. D.L. Moody, the great uh, preacher, once said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. On this note, a preacher that I admire who is no stranger to revival in contemporary times wrote, on Ezra 3, I suggest that the reason revival is so missing in our country today is that rather than unity, we see division, fighting, and fault-finding among the people of God. One way to kill revival is division. Disrespect, gossip, lying, lobbying, pouting, manipulating, unsubmissiveness, focused on myself and what I want and what I want to get. These things suck the life right out of a church and hogtie the ministers of a church from doing the work of equipping the saints for the harvest with doing triage for dysfunctional and toxic types. These problems stand to worsen in our culture with the social data on the generations that are coming who are progressively more and more individualistic and entitled. Everyone gets a trophy, participation ribbons, figures of authority are disrespected, 
My grandfather, who was a minister, would be floored to hear the way that pastors are spoken of to today. It is, it is surreal. The role of the reverend has been reduced to a, 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 a servant at a counter. What can I get you? What can I get you? And the customer is always right. Reflecting on unity, we mustn't reduce the application to personal or relational unity. We also want to see unity in God's people in the social and the ethnic and the economic dimensions as well. We live in a divided culture. We live in a culture that has ethnic divides, class divides, economic divides. The studies show that those actually even worsen in the church. We see the divides in the culture, and when you add the variable of faith, it even intensifies. In the book of Acts that I mentioned earlier, how God was drawing the people together, it wasn't just drawing them together so that they had the same mind and they were getting along. We get along. We're submissive to each other. We love each other. We don't talk about each other. We're all getting along. It's not just a kumbaya, but you had rich and poor there, slave and free there, different ethnic groups who hated each other, Jews and Gentiles there. And that's all a testimony. Like God's doing this. Look at how he's bringing groups that in the world are divided and he's making them one in here. In Ezra 3, we see the same. Jews and Gentiles in Ezra 3 working together to build the temple. Did you catch that? In verse 7, you read of the Sidonians and the Tyrians. And one commentator here notes, I find it interesting that it was at Joppa that Jonah refused to preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh. Remember that? And also where Peter was called to minister to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Remember that? And now here we see in Ezra 3, God and Joppa and Gentiles, Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon, working together, not to mention the Gentile king Cyrus, and they're all working together, believers and non-believers, Gentiles and Jews, slave and free, rich and poor, they're all working together to do God's work in anticipation of what was to come. And that's the final point on the outline, the point where we will take communion in just a moment. So make sure if you haven't gotten communion, there's a table over there, you can grab one, a table over there, you can grab one. My final point is Messiah and sanctification. We've talked about a lot of things, memorials and sacrifice, migration and saints, the month of seventh, the morning and sunset, the money and sanctuary, how they sacrifice to, 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 to build this place of worship. And now finally, Messiah and sanctification. They are building the altar and the temple that Jesus will go into. The eternal son who takes on flesh will go to the temple that they are building. John wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, 14, when, when Jesus is spoken of there, He said to, to dwell among us. And in the Greek, it literally says He tabernacled among us. It's Sukkot language. Festivals of booths that we've been talking about here in Ezra 3. The image of being in a tent and, and, and out and all of that like is, is enfleshed in the eternal son who comes. He is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the literal Sukkot of God. So as we take communion today, we think of the sacrifice. As we take communion today, we think of him as our high priest. In Ezra 3 verse 2, we read past the name of a high priest, Yeshua, which is the literal rendering of the name Jesus, Yeshua. There's the pointer of a Yeshua who will come. In Ezra, we read about these Jewish festivals and all these festivals that we're looking at in Teshri. We look at Yom Kippur. We look at Sukkot. We look at all of that. You go, oh, it's all pointing to Jesus. Rosh Hashanah, it's all pointing to Jesus. It is believed that on Rosh Hashanah, the destiny of the righteous and the wicked are sealed. 
Over those 10 days of repentance, there's the invitation to come to the Lord and to repent so, so that one's sin is not sealed. And there is atonement at the end of it with Yom Kippur. And here we come with this cup and we think of our Yom Kippur. We think of Christ, our atonement. We think of Christ in whom we are sealed. If you would but call on him and come this day. We spoke about altars in this study. The greatest altar in all of the Bible is the cross of Calvary. That is the edifice upon which the blood of the holy and spotless one was shed for us. As we open our communion cups and we have the bread before us, we think of the sukkah, the flesh, the tent that Israel was in as Israel worshipped and they commemorated that liberation. And now we think of our Lord Jesus who took on flesh, who tabernacled, who has come to offer us a liberation that is greater than the underground railroad of Moses. It is a liberation not of human tyrants, but of sin. And we have all sinned and we all need one who will go in place of us. We need one like I'm young Kippur, one that gives its life so that the other can be set free. Behold the Christ who became a man to set us free. Let us eat. The picture of the bread is not just a picture of his incarnation in his flesh. It is also a picture of his body, the body of Christ. We are committed to one another as we take this meal. It's fitting that we look around at one another as we take this meal and we think, oh, I'm, I'm one, Bruce and I are one. Laura and I are one. The dailies, we're one. We're eating the same bread. We've been made a body. We are one. And so we ought to live as one in the way that we love one another, in the way that we serve together, in the way that we are on mission together. That same oneness we read in Ezra. And then we're reminded that this oneness that we have came at this great cost, the cost of blood. You don't have blood, you're dead. You bleed out, you die. There was one who was bled out for us in order to pay the payment that we owed, death. We owed that. We could not pay it on our own, for we are full of sin. Behold the one who has come who is free from sin, who pours out his innocent blood for us. Let us drink. I began the sermon kind of jokingly talking about our colloquialisms, Benefer, getting left at the altar, people who let you down, people who you think will be there and they're not and what have you. This sermon series is, is entitled Faithful to Fulfill. And as we're studying the exile, we're seeing that God did not leave Israel at the altar. God comes to Israel. God prepares the altar himself. God moves in their hearts for that altar. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And you have been called, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by the great apostle to present yourselves as living sacrifices. The altar and the cross of Calvary lives in the church as we bear witnesses as the sacrifices in this dispensation, awaiting the age when the Messiah will come, awaiting the age when Israel will be restored, awaiting the age when the church will join with the saints of old and we will be before his throne crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so now as we respond to his word, it is fitting that we sing. Our sister is going to lead us in song. I invite you to stand. I invite you as you sing to cry out in your heart, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Lord, make me one with you and with your people.
that, that we would do teshri here, that we, would, that we would go through repentance in our hearts, that we would leave this place today when the service closes and we're done singing and we close in prayer, that you, you would know that God worked in me this morning. God stirred something in me this morning. Let's go before him in prayer and seek him to this end. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit who moves through your word. I pray now, O oh God, that your spirit would move and take the word that we have heard in this study of altars, this study of Ezra 3, this study of your faithfulness to your people Israel, the proclamation of your gospel, the communion that has been celebrated. O oh Lord, use all of these by your grace to draw us now in repentance and faith. Receive these songs of worship. You are worthy to be sung to. O oh God, move in our hearts as we sing now, we pray for your glory. Amen.